Coming up in the state we're in, the X-Files, spelled E-X, starting with Garant, ex-securities broker. The only difference between me and the Armani-clad gangsters who plunged the world into recession is that I didn't get away with it. It's going to be payback time for the rest of my sorry life. Former ballerina Maria tells us all about her enforced anorexia. In the beginning, it's adrenaline that gives you energy. Then your body sends you signals and you start getting sick and your bones start giving way. You start to realize something is wrong. And an ex-German neo-Nazi regrets one assault on an immigrant family more than all the others. I'd had a lot of training and experience fighting over the years. I knocked the man out. Then I attacked the woman and, worst of all, I kicked the little girl because she was crying too loudly. This is Just Ahead on the State We're In, right after this. The State We're In, how we treat each other around the world. Real voices, real stories, from Radio Netherlands Worldwide. This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today's show is called The X-Files. That's E-X. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I keep Garrett Anderson made tons of money when he worked in London's financial district, the city. And he wrote about the corruption he saw firsthand under the pen name City Boy. Most city boys lie, cheat and steal every single hour of their lives as they strive to accumulate ever more wealth. But I went even further. We first spoke to Garant in 2009, but now he's writing novels about his time in the city. But I'm in no position to judge them, for I'm as bad as they are. Maybe and here he is, reading from his most recent book, Just Business. The only difference between me and the Armani-clad gangsters who plunged the world into recession is that I didn't get away with it. It's going to be payback time for the rest of my sorry life. Now, I know that this is fiction, but did you <laughs> lie, cheat, and steal every moment of your life as you strove to accumulate ever more wealth? And you're laughing. Uh, you know... Yes, basically. I'll tell you, I tell in various different ways. For start, the biggest lie that I did at work day in, day out, which is one that is repeated across the globe, is pretending that my clients were my friends. So how would you do that, for um, example? I, my, my basic techniques were slightly uh, un- controversial, slightly unusual. I would use uh, a combination of alcohol, strip joints, pop concerts, and cocaine. You know, a lot of my competitors were much better analysts than me but they had uh, you know had a charisma bypass at birth they, they just had no personality <laughs> <laughs> and I used to take them to nightclubs used to take them to strip clubs used to take them everywhere dish loads of cocaine into them put loads of champagne in them and then ask for basically for them to do their trades through me so it was just a, a, a very simple form of bribery You've left uh, high finance, Mm. you've published two novels, and both of them feature high finance and (laughs) murder. Yes. Now, forgive this weird question, but why are you pairing the banking world and the world of investment with death? Well, you know, it's actually, I'd say it's more with gangsters. It's, It's, you know, there's not actually that much difference between an efficient uh, stockbroker or banker and a well-organized criminal gang. 
they both have the same basic uh, ambition, which is to earn as much money as quickly as possible. Morals take a major sideline. And, uh, you know, th- there are certain rules that govern the game. And, 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 and I felt that the, the, the distinction between gangsters and bankers became blurred over the last 20 years. Well, let me ask you this. I, I know from our previous conversation in 2009 that you fell into the financial industry by accident, yes. that your brother kind of got you into it. But when did you start to feel greed as a force intoxicating you? Uh, good question. I, You know, I remember getting my first bonus in 1997 and it was £14,000 and I went into the bathroom and I went, oh my God, that's incredible. About 10 years later, I got fight. I was on a beach in Goa and I was smoking a joint and having a nice time. And I got my and I phoned up I, and I said, "Where's my bonus?" And they said, "It's half a million pounds." And I went, "Oh, great, thanks." Put the phone down. Went back to sit in my group of people, having almost forgotten what they'd just told me. And then about five minutes later, I went, "Oh my God, sorry, I've forgotten. I've just they've just given me half a million pounds." And what I'm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, okay, I was a little bit high, but the simple fact of the matter is, is that. Uh, you know, you start becoming blasé. But I, I think greed, yeah, I, I think it's probably around about 2000, about four years into my career, I got a contract for a £100,000 bonus and I suddenly started thinking, Geraint, you are making a lot of money. You're only 28. If you keep this up, you can retire in about five, seven years or something. You know, this is amazing. And, and, and I just suddenly, you know, I found aspects of my personality, the nasty ones, that's what the city really appealed to and also encouraged. Whereas the nicer parts of me were seen as things that are weak and vulnerable and would actually um, make my me less effective in my job. Your love gives me such a thrill But your love can't pay my bills I need money Well, you know, actually, in our previous interview, you said this. You know, when you're earning five times what your dad is earning and you're four years into a career, can make you a little bit arrogant, especially if you're very young when you take on the job. And that's why the city is full of arrogant, boorish idiots. I don't know how to ask this question, Garrett, but Mm. were you ever, and I'm putting quotation marks around (laughs) this word, an idiot? Yeah, yeah course for example well i mean look you know without being heavy uh uh, one of the things i did was i split up with a girl i was going to marry who we were both fully in love with each other uh and the simple fact of the matter is is that i we were engaged to be married and i just thought you know what actually what i need to do is is just have lots and lots of beautiful women and this is going to tie me down. And that's not what life's about. Life life isn't about love and commitment and relationships. Life's about shagging as many beautiful, you know, superficial women in Ibiza as I possibly can. Do you remember the moment when you broke up with your girlfriend at the time, who you really loved? What did you say I, to her? I just, we just had, an, I think we just had an argument. And I just, you, you can see your life sometimes going in two paths, can't you? And you can go, okay, that's just a straight, normal thing where you go and get married, you have kids, you live in the house. Or here's a life where I can maybe retire in a few years, travel the world, do what the hell I want, be a selfish, hedonistic uh, little And you know what? Uh, They both are quite appealing. You know, the, the, the former option is is more fulfilling for me. I, 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 now I'm hit, I've hit the big 4-0, I'm 40 years old, and I'm, I've got one baby now with my wife, and I've got another one coming, so, and I live in the country. My life is so different from what it used to be, it's unbelievable. Mazel tov. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Garen's obviously happy to be out of the banking world, which now faces scathing criticism in the UK, the US, and all over the world for various scandals, like interest rate fixing and its ongoing culture of reckless greed and unfettered appetite. We would go out for lunch at midday and not come back to the office. And it would be, you know, we, we would just have fantastic, boozy, Michelin-starred lunches, which uh, my bank would pay for. That's a four or £500 meal, at least. And then, uh, you know, get a couple of grams of Coke and, um, and go off partying. And, you know, it was pretty, pretty nice in some ways. How do you think that kind of behavior actually affected the financial system? Well, you know... It's funny because it, it, when I look at uh, the, the, the financial crash and the, the boom that preceded it, and maybe this is this is slightly a wrong way of looking at it, it does feel like a kind of it, it was almost like we were all getting so excited. We we're in this bubble. It was all it was a very cocainey thing, you know, and we were all getting drunk, and it was just my God, you know, how can we we not make money? This is so easy, and 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 it was all crazy, and we all believed the hype, even though at the back of our minds we were just about smart enough to realise that what goes up must come down. But we always said, yeah, but it, it won't be this year; it'll be next year. And then this huge crash that occurred. It's like the massive come down after a party, you know, and that's what's extraordinary about the markets. They just reflect human emotions. If you have that greed and that belief that everything's going to be going up, up, up and up, it does go up, up and up until suddenly there's this realize someone says the emperor's got no clothes and you all go, my God, what are we doing? These things aren't worth anything. And that's why stock markets, you know, go up and down like a whore's draws, as they say. You know, I'm just w wondering something about you personally, Garrett. Mm. When you were in the banking world, you secretly bogged about it for a newspaper. Mm. You wrote about what you saw and what you didn't like. You've since spoken out about it mm. and published two novels set in that world of high-stakes international finance. What is being worked out here? Are you exercising <laughs> a personal demon? Yeah. You, look, man, it's it's. I'm afraid my mum hit the nail on the head yesterday when I had dinner with her. She said, you can take the boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy. You know, there is some definite uh, moral stuff there. There's some guilt. There's some kind of, you know, that, that blog for me was a confessional. That I say, It wasn't just a blog. It was a, a weekly article in, in a newspaper that, that was anonymous. And it was like a confessional. It's having to get this stuff off my chest because I knew... I was doing the wrong thing. I knew I was playing in a casino that was kind of come crashing down and cost a lot of people their livelihoods. Um, and so I suppose, you know, there's elements where I was really beating myself up saying, what were you doing? You were bought up well. You're, you know, you, you were nice left-wing father who was a, a Labour MP. Uh, your your mum is very religious. You were a hippie and goer. What the hell are you doing with your life? You're just, you know, trying to make a fast buck. And in the process, you know, in your heart of hearts that you're screwing people over. If you could go back in time and talk mm. to the younger version of Garrett Anderson just before he took the banking job in <laughs> London, in the city, in working in finance, what would you tell him? <laughs> just, I suppose it'd be like, do the right thing, treat people better than you um, you might feel inclined to do, and don't let this stuff go to your head. You're just, uh, you're, you know, you're food for the worms in 50 years, you're nothing special, you know, just, just treat people well, be considerate, and spend more time with your poor parents. You know, they got completely neglected uh, for a long period. Uh, just be a better person, you know, not not such a, 
a, a selfish, greedy, inconsiderate And Garrett, would young you have listened? <laughs> no, no. I'd have said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go and have a line of coke. <laughs> Garrett, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much. All the best things in life are free You can keep them for the birds and bees I want money Garrett Anderson's latest novel is called Just Business, and you can find a link to it and to all the other stuff Garrett's up to these days at TSWI.org. That's tiswi.org. Coming up, we'll meet an ex-ballerina who, like many other women dancers, starved herself to get leading roles at La Scala. After some time, I'd often get sick or I'd get kidney stones and pains, tendonitis. I believe I really damaged my body during that time. The X-Files, that's when the state run returns in just a moment. Stay with us. This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today's show is called The X-Files. That's X spelled with an E-X. It's 2006, and Maria Francesca Garitano, or Maria as she likes to be called, is about to take the stage for the performance of her career in Rudolf Nureyev's production of The Nutcracker Suite. It was really lovely because I'd prepared for it very carefully. I was careful about what I ate, about rehearsals and how we did them. It was a magical time. When the curtain came down, I cried with joy because I was so happy with the work I'd done. All the sacrifices I'd made had been worth it. Maria's love affair with ballet had actually started 30 years earlier. I was taken to dance lessons when I was very little. I was only three, I think. When I got older, I began to believe more and more that I'd become a professional ballerina. What was it about ballet that really grabbed you? I think it was the joy of movement and music together. You just dance because it's lovely to dance, and lovely to do it to a piece of music that inspires emotions in you. A lot of little girls, when they dream about being a a ballet dancer, there's an element of fantasy, an element of escape. Was ballet an escape for you? Yes, it was for me, because to do this professionally can sometimes give you the possibility of escaping from reality. So I decided to try and achieve my dream. I left home because I wanted to run away from it all. I thought that was the only way to save myself, so I took refuge even more intensely in dance. 
When she was 16, Maria moved to Milan, where she won a fiercely competitive place at La Scala, one of the world's oldest and most prestigious theatres. I gradually began to understand it was really hard to be part of such a professional and competitive environment. So I began to realize that the reality was different from what I'd imagined in my dreams. What, what had you imagined? That it was a perfect world. I'd imagine it was a perfect world in which those who deserved to dance, danced. In which there was no envy, no suffering, no disappointment. In which dancing was the only thing you had to think about. How demanding was it physically? It was physically very tiring. I had dance lessons all day long. And then in the evening from 6 to 10 or 11 p.m. I had to go to school. And how were you treated by your instructors? I always got lots of compliments for my technique. But there was always the problem of my physique. They kept on telling me how my body was no good. My shape was no good. Well, can you give me an example of the kinds of things that they would say to you? Things like I was flaccid like mozzarella. Or ravioli. How did that make you feel? I felt really uncomfortable. Until I got so thin that I was finally okay for them. And they stopped saying these things to me. Can I ask you, how much did you weigh? When I lost weight, I weighed about 43 kilograms. Very little. And that was down from about 48 or 49 kilograms. 43 kilos? And how tall are you? 1,67. Uh, 1 meter 67. 167. So I, so I guess that makes you about 5'5". Five, five. That, that's really, really very, very thin. I mean, you were already thin, but that's really very thin. Yeah. How did you lose that weight? Uh, non mangiavo. <laughs> I didn't eat. I stopped eating properly. I only ate a piece of fruit and some yogurt or maybe sometimes some vegetables and yogurt. I just wanted to lose the weight as quickly as possible. While you were losing all this weight, did you like what was happening to your body? I liked seeing myself thin, but I didn't feel well. And I didn't like what was happening on the inside of my body because I felt very weak. Did you have a sense of pride over the fact that you could control your weight that way? Yes, of course. I discovered afterwards that this is an aspect of eating disorders, that when you lose weight, you begin to like how you feel because you feel strong. You become addicted to this condition even though you know it's not healthy. Maria's weight loss made her look good in the eyes of La Scala. When she was 18, she was offered a full-time contract with the company. And now other people were noticing her too. Those around me said, aren't you beautiful? Aren't you thin? You look great. When I was at school, it was something to be proud of and show off. So I had the impression that thinness was a sort of incentive to get more rewards, to get more roles. And did you feel beautiful? Yes, at the time, yes. I was convinced that I was beautiful because I liked myself thin. 
because I was doing well and I was the way I should be, the way they told me I should be. When did things start to go physically very wrong for you? I started finding that my body would just crumble if any little thing happened. The whole structure, the scaffolding of my body would give way. You keep having little accidents. Or often you get a fever or a sore throat or kidney pains. I think the absolute worst thing was was not having my period for a year and eight months. I believe I really damaged my body during that time. I can't even truly quantify what kind of damage I've done yet. But for a young girl, an adolescent, not to have a menstrual cycle for a long time, that's the worst thing that can happen to you, I think. Maria's health was deteriorating, and so was her relationship with La Scala. But it wasn't until late 2011, when she gave an interview to a British newspaper, that she began to speak out about eating disorders. And that was pretty much the end of her ballet career. I've never said anything against La Scala. They're the ones who decide to get rid of me. So they fired you? Yes. How did you find out? How did I find out? By letter. What exactly did the letter say? That my declarations constituted damage to the company's image. And so they were breaking off their working relationship with me based on that. How did you feel when you opened up that letter and you read that? I couldn't read the letter. I was trembling. Why did you decide to talk about this suddenly? Because in the world of dance, there have always been people who want to depict it as a perfect and marvelous world, without wanting anyone to have the real picture. I think it was a sort of enough of always telling everyone that everything is fine. Let's also tell them about what isn't fine and try to do something about it. These days, Maria is better known as a writer than a ballerina. She's published a book called The Truth, Please, about ballet. And as you might guess, she's not sorry she blew the whistle on what really goes on inside the world of ballet. I think it was worthwhile because today, especially in Italy, we are speaking about eating disorders. Even though my book only hints at an ongoing problem, and only a little, just one page, Molto poco, una pagina soltanto. But I think it was worth it anyway. If I could just ask you, it, this is always a weird question to ask any woman, but in this conversation, it's perfectly normal. How much do you weigh now? 49, 50 kilograms? Maybe 50. Sono <laughs> normale. I feel good. I'm physically healthier, less fragile. Do you think you'll ever dance professionally again? If the company invites me to, yes. And if you can't? It doesn't depend on me, I think. It depends on how the world responds to what's happened. If the world is waiting for me to dance again or not. Is there still some magic in ballet for you? Yes, music and the body together. That's the magic of ballet.
Maria Francesca Garitano spoke to me from Milan, Italy. You can find a link to her book and see photos of her at tswi.org, tiswi.org, or check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash tswi.org. You're listening to The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and we're calling this week's show The X-Files. My name is Abbas Idris, uh, and I was a security guard for Andrews International. Abbas is a devout Muslim of Eritrean heritage. Andrews International is a security company based in California where Abbas started working in late 2007. For the first four months, Abbas liked his job. But then, on a rainy January day, he was working outside when his account manager approached him. He comes within, I'd say, about eight or nine feet of uh, where I was posted working. And uh, he says to me, you know, he sees that I have the raincoat on. He says, Abbas, don't zip up your jacket. You look too black. He said what? He, um, he told me not to zip up my raincoat. Uh, he said, because I look too black in it, to kind of say it in a, in a barking fashion, um, just, just very aggressively. Okay, so how did you take that? Initially, I was, I was confused. Um, it made me very uncomfortable, and I felt offended. But more importantly, I'm working outside. Even if it was zipped up, I, you know, I can be seen very easily, uh, just as the job required. How did you choose to take this? In the end, I mean, I, I, I understood this to be, um, you know, a racial remark. I, I could not see the, the, the purpose beyond him offending me. So what did you say when he said that? When he said that, um, you know, I just, I, I didn't say anything to him. I just, I, I continued to work uh, and to think about what was said throughout the rest of that shift. I mean, and, and just really bothered me. It really bothered me. Incidents like this happened regularly. A boss reported them to authorities at Andrews International, but nothing happened. And they went on for two years. For me, it was a nightmare. It's a little bit, it's a little bit challenging to, to talk about, but I, I'd have dreams that they were, that they were hurting me. Um, two of the individuals that had harassed me at the job were actually um, b- burning they were burning my body. I was I was tied up, and they were like burning my body. They had they had set my body on fire from from my feet, and they were um, standing and and they were saying things to me. Um, nothing I could make out, but they they were just smiling and and watching me uh, as I burned. And then you wake up in the morning, and you get dressed for work, and you go there. And I see I, these people in, yeah. in real life. How could you do that? I don't know, uh, to, to be completely honest. Partly on the belief system that, that something would be done, uh, and partly because it was very difficult to find work. And as these things were occurring, there was no reprimand for these individuals. I, I was kind of left trying to hide from coworkers, trying to avoid these individuals, because I know that um, there was a good chance that they would do more, they would say more. And it was tough, you know, I, I was trapped. Um, did you try to get some help? I did, I did. I reached out to the Muslim community, uh, I spoke to my imam, but additionally, I had to end up seeing a therapist. I also ended up seeing a psychiatrist. 
Then, in January 2010, a security supervisor went further than making racist comments to something even more sinister. He said that I was a, a GD terrorist. And he said that um, a boss cannot be trusted, you know. And he said that you can't trust Al-Qaeda, uh, referring to me as well in this conversation. Um, I, you know, I was not present for this conversation, but the security officers who, who heard this, who was told this by another security officer, uh, he reported this, you know, just as I had reported the ongoing racial and religious discrimination. He, he reported this occurrence, uh, this conversation that he had to management. Okay. And uh, uh, nothing was done. As a matter of fact, one of the, the regional directors who also um, played the role of an account manager for Andrews International, he actually constantly talked about how the security officer was a wonderful security officer, and he said he didn't believe that the security officer could do those things, and he did everything in his power to protect this person from any kind of reprimand. So what did you do when you heard this? Well, initially, I cried. I, I didn't know what else to do. I mean, this, to me, this was kind of, I, I almost want to say I was exhausted. And I was just exhausted. I was tired by, by discrimination. I was, I was exhausted by the ongoing harassment. But the security officer who'd called Abbas a terrorist caught wind of the complaint. So he went to talk to Abbas. I was in the break room, the security break room, uh, which is like where we took our lunch breaks and stuff. And uh, he's, he's, he's pumped. Um, you know, he was he was kind of like red-faced. He was sweating a little bit. Uh, you know, he just came in from karate practice, and and he was he was you know noticeably upset as well. You know, when he came in, he kind of uh, he kind of cornered me in the break room. Uh, he came he came in real close, and I just kept backing up away from him. He says, uh, he said, you know, I I you know I didn't say those things about you. You know, did you think he was gonna hit you or something? I, you know, I don't. I didn't know what to think. Um, he, you know, just from the way he was dressed, you know, he was. He looked like he was ready to to attack. Even though the security officer never touched Abbas, it was the final straw. He wrote a resignation letter detailing what he'd been through, but once again, heard nothing. So he decided to go to court. And in April 2012, Andrews International was found guilty of discrimination. The jury awarded me. Um, it was $65,000 in back wages, and then initially $400,000. Oh, my God. Um, what did you think when you heard damage. that? I, I, I was ecstatic. I was ecstatic because I felt vindicated. I was able to present my case to, you know, to 12 jurors, and they were able to see, they were able to understand that this was an injustice. So I felt wonderful. I felt really, really blessed. Given everything that you've been through and everything that's happened... What's the one lesson you've taken away from all of this? That, that decency is the most important thing. And what about justice? That justice can be served, absolutely. A lawsuit is a very difficult thing, very strenuous, very long. Um, it's, it's very complex, and it takes a lot out of you. However, if you feel that you have been wronged, uh, then it is very important. It's very important to stand up for yourself in any capacity. Well, Abbas Idris, thank you so much for coming in and telling us your story, and congratulations on the win. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Abbas Idris in San Francisco, California. He now works as a counselor at the San Francisco General Hospital. You can see a photo of him on our website at TSWI.org. And as a footnote to this story, the amount that Abbas will now actually receive has been lowered to close to $250,000. Coming up, a young man from the former East Germany on why he felt it was his patriotic duty to become a neo-Nazi. Back in the 90s, our principle was actions, not words. We saw that diplomacy achieved nothing, so we used practical acts of violence, things like that. The X-Files, that's when the state we're in continues in a moment. Stay with us. This is The State Marin. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today's show is called The X-Files. My name is Manuel Bauer. I'm 33 years old. I'm originally from Saxony in the former East Germany. I've always been the kind of person who would put himself out there, right in front of things. I've been like that since I was a child. Manuel Bauer was out front as the head of an infamous neo-Nazi gang in the 1990s. Saxony is where he grew up, and it was part of the former East Germany. Unemployment and disillusionment there is really high. When he was just 11, his buddies started shaving their heads and using terms that really caught his ear. Terms like racial purity. I knew about right-wing ideas, fascism and the Holocaust from history class, but I actually saw the social problems we had in our new reunified states like mass unemployment, mass immigration, and businesses shutting down. We blamed West German capitalists and globalization. What exactly was it about this group and Hitler that attracted you? The group were old school pals and friends. Uh, we'd been to communist pioneers, which is sort of a boy scouts. And that was back when we lived in East Germany. And we'd been to pioneer camp together. And Adolf Hitler's dictatorship meant a free German Reich. And the first step towards that was a reunited Germany. Endlich Deutschland wieder zusammen. What were the kinds of things you and this group would do together? We'd meet at the train station or the clubhouse after school and we'd listen to music. I smoked cigarettes, I drank alcohol for the very first time there. And we'd hang out and drink more on the weekends. Then we started making graffiti and vandalizing cars. We'd knock the side mirrors off. Well, that's how it started. Later on, I started committing my first real crimes, or was at least part of the group committing them. That's when I started to feel heroic, because the others respected me, because people knew I was part of a very aggressive group. I felt strong because I knew I wasn't alone. 
So I'd insult people just for the fun of it. Rip their cigarettes off and, and steal their money just because I knew I could get away with it. I felt really comfortable. As you got older, just how deeply did you get into the neo-Nazi movement? The first couple of years, we all were followers. Then the older ones instructed us about the law, about our political opponents, and about our goals. I soaked it all up, and it, it started to seep into my everyday life, like into the kind of music I listened to, my use of language, things like that. Did you have a favorite song? And if yes, would you mind singing us a bit? I had quite a few favorite songs, but I really liked Lancer's Aryan Child. Your eyes are blue like the deep ocean. Uh, sorry, it's been some time. Your hair is blonde like a ripe tulip field hit by a ray of sun. Wow, so those are some seriously Aryan right-wing lyrics. Did you really believe that when you were singing it? Ja, definitiv, auf jeden Fall. Oh yes, absolutely. Auf jeden Fall. The right-wing scene often uses a tulip field as a metaphor. If you don't tend your field, weeds will grow and your tulips will die. This is what we call race shame, mixing blood. Once blood is mixed, the genes and characteristics of a people are changed. So, I believed in race shame and not mixing blood and changing its defining characteristics. We raided a Turkish wedding. It lasted all of two or three minutes. We stormed the building, beat the crap out of the first people we saw, and we ran right out again. Oh, we did stuff like this all the time, and nobody dared press charges against us because we threatened them. You know, Manuel, when you went in with your group of boys and you beat up these people at this wedding... Did you feel like a hero? I felt like a resistance fighter, an activist. I felt it was a legitimate use of violence. My comrades and I saw ourselves as victims of the system, victims of globalization. History showed what would happen to the German people. 
In North America, mass immigration and colonization pushed Native Americans onto reservations. So we thought that mass immigration, intermarriage, the undermining of German culture and language, meant that pure-blood Germans would be forced to live on reservations too. So armed with an ideology of hate and seeing himself as a victim of history, Manuel started to lash out even more. There was once this Indian man and his wife and little girl standing at the train station. I was 18 and walking through our town, slightly drunk, and I saw them. And just seeing them provoked me. Back then I thought immigrants were parasites. I walked up to them and asked them why they were looking at me like that. The man gestured that I should leave which I took to be an attack to my person and my identity. No foreigner was going to tell me what to do. I was looking for trouble, so it escalated. I'd had a lot of training and experience fighting over the years, so I knocked the man out. Then I attacked the woman and, worst of all, and I will never get this out of my head, I kicked the little girl because she was crying too loudly. And then I ran away. Manuel then joined the army because he wanted to learn about firearms and explosives. And after he got out, he founded paramilitary organizations of his own. But two things happened that changed Manuel's outlook. First, he started dating a girl from outside the neo-Nazi movement. And then he was sent to jail where he tried to beat up two other neo-Nazis for the un-Germanic act of smoking a joint. But when they started to get the upper hand, Manuel got rescued by two Turkish men. I hated those Turkish guys for that. I hated them for getting involved in a German national issue. But what was worse was that the German guys weren't taking our ideology seriously. After that, dozens of past contradictions that I had tried to suppress flooded into my mind. I knew that there'd be consequences for what happened in prison. And, and the prison authorities asked me if I wanted to get out of the neo-Nazi scene and join a program called Exit. Exit Deutschland, ob ich da nicht aussteigen möchte. Exit is a program which offers former neo-Nazi psychological help. It's also a kind of witness protection program. I agreed to go into the program to avoid further prosecution. But when I started talking to the Exit people, I realized who I was and what I'd achieved. And I'd achieved nothing. Exit didn't see me as neo-Nazi Manuel Bauer, but as a 21 or 22-year-old prisoner with no school degree, no practical skills, a man who hated people he'd never even met or spoken with. I realized that Turkish people aren't as bad as I thought they were, and I met other Turks in prison, and I realized they aren't these heretical anti-Germans. We're all in the same boat. Those were my very first peaceful encounters with Turkish people. 
Wow, so prison was actually good for you. Ich glaube, das war das Beste, was mir passieren konnte zu jener Zeit, ja. I think it was the best thing that could have happened to me at that time. So, by the time you were ready to leave prison, you'd already thought to yourself, I'm actually no longer a neo-Nazi. Were you simply just able to leave the neo-Nazis after that? Nein, also ich habe nach meiner no. After prison, I led a double life for three years. Leaving it is not as easy as it sounds. You led a parallel life for three years. What is that like? It sounds really hard. Es war auch unfassbar schwer, denn es sind ja nicht nur die Freunde. It was tremendously hard. It's not just about your friends, but also your clothes, your apartment, furniture, music, the way you communicate, your social environment. Gefühle, emotionale... Das Emotionale ist eigentlich... Um the emotions are what's actually most dangerous, though. You can very easily relapse. Well, let me just ask you this, Manuel, because I'm sure the people listening to this right now are thinking to themselves, what did you do when the time came to go off and beat somebody up and your heart wasn't in it anymore? I mean, what did you do? Um, ich habe dann I pretended I was sick or broke or that I had to visit my parents. Sometimes, yeah, I couldn't get out of it, so I'd be the lookout. People noticed, of course. Then the situation became very, very delicate. Tell me about the day you left the neo-Nazis. Um, das war eigentlich mit dem Umzug, um, wo ich jetzt lebe. That was the day I moved secretly to where I live now. I'd already partially broken away from my old comrades emotionally, so all I needed was to get away geographically. When you left, did you just leave or did you tell them that you were leaving? Also, ich bin, um, I just left and didn't tell anybody. But they found out in the media that I had exited. Exit arranged my relocation and it was lucky that, yeah, that we did that um, because that very weekend the neo-Nazis were on my old doorstep. Manuel was out. But he says there's now an internet campaign against him and maybe even a price on his head. And there's something else. Manuel's overwhelming sense of guilt. I have apologized to some of my victims. Most of them couldn't forgive me or even accept my apology, yeah, for understandable reasons. Others have accepted my apology, the Indian family, for example. The little girl is now a student, and she says the incident is the reason she's studying politics. The Indian family, did you see them face to face? We met twice. The meetings were very cheerful. I felt very small. I was embarrassed. And of course, I accepted the blame. I almost didn't go because it was yeah, just too emotional for me. But we talked. They didn't say, we forgive you or we accept the apology. We just talked and, yeah, I interpreted it that way. So, Manuel, you think that they've forgiven you. Have you forgiven yourself? No. No. I beat up women. I beat up children. It's shameful. No. Manuel's story is even bigger now, as the murders by neo-Nazis of nine immigrants and a policewoman have recently come to light. Manuel has declined to name names. 
But he does say there are Nazi sympathizers operating covertly at the very highest levels of German society and that he has to be very careful. I still live in hiding. My wife and I have been threatened many times. I have a document from the city of Berlin that I always carry around with me and it confirms that I once belonged to an extreme right-wing terrorist organization. And in an emergency, I have the right to seek sanctuary in sealed government buildings. And there's no other way. For example, I was chased in a train by neo-Nazis for hundreds of kilometers. So, Manuel, is there something that you can point to in your life today where you can say, yes, it's been worth it? It was worth having people tell me that I inspired them to get out. I give presentations in schools and teachers and students start projects against Nazism. There are parents who thank me for supporting them. And of course, I have my wife's support. That was worth it. That was the best decision I ever made in my whole life. And I guess one last very quick question. Manuel, are you happy? Ich bin beruhigt. Well, I'm calm now, but no, no, I'm not happy. Glücklich bin ich nicht, nein. Manuel Bauer lives in a secret location somewhere in Germany. We have a picture of him, and you can find out more about his story on our website, tswi.org, tiswi.org, where you can also leave us your thoughts about what you've heard on anything in today's show. And you can also do that on Facebook, of course, at facebook.com slash tswi.org. There are just two more Tiswis to go before we close up shop for good. We're still working on a miracle. But for now, all that remains to ask is, what's the state we're in this week? When I look at uh, the, the, the financial crash and the, the boom that preceded it, it was a very cocaine-y thing, you know, just my God, you know, and it was all crazy and we all believed the hype, even though at the back of our minds we were just about smart enough to realise that what goes up must come down. So I began to recount my experience, never imagining it would come to this. I think it was a sort of enough of always telling everyone that everything is fine. Let's also tell them about what isn't fine. Decency is the most important thing. And what about justice? That justice can be served, absolutely. If you feel that you have been wrong, uh, then it is very important to stand up for yourself in any capacity. So, Manuel, you think that they've forgiven you. Have you forgiven yourself? No. I beat up women, I beat up children. It's shameful. The State We're In is produced by Minyan Ehlen and Deanna Steinbergen. Greg Kelly is our editor, Sid Fordham our webmaster, and I'm Jonathan Gruber. See you next week for another edition of The State We're In.
In the next The State We're In, when an Iraqi man converted to Christianity, he took his life into his hands. My uncle said, there's a fatwa to kill you, and we could very easily kill you. So I said, look, if you want to kill me, just kill me. And then my uncle pointed a gun at me. He fired a shot into the air, and then he said I should run for my life. That's in the next The State We're In.